Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please say positive things about us to a friend. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. And also go to Twitter and Facebook and like us and follow us there. Respond to us in the chat, retweet, Reshare on Facebook. We appreciate those things as well. Start a MySpace. Pa- start a MySpace page for us. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say it can't hurt, but it probably can't help either. <laughs> if you start haven't a TikTok yet, channel on a, TikTok, on our behalf. I had a student today, like in the Google Chat in my virtual class, say, "How what was it? F M R, F M R on TikTok. Can you decode that for me?" No, FML. Well, I know what FML means. Follow my latest. Oh, no. Okay. Was it like okay. my latest? Okay. Yeah, no, okay. It, it wasn't what you thought. And I had to okay. like, quickly look it up to try to appear deaf. <laughs> and, uh, and, and this I was going to say, like, kids shouldn't be saying FML. No, it wasn't FML. But you had to, like, look it up to make sure they weren't. Kirk, we are treading on dangerous ground here. Do you know why? It might become a tradition for me to just disrupt your opening. Yeah. It was LMR, like my recent. Like okay. my recent. So that's what they call them on like your recent, recent yeah, so, listener, story or whatever. LMR on Twitter yeah. and Facebook. Yeah. LMR, LMR. baby. Uh, follow us on Twitter at, at clergy lay and join our Facebook discussion group, which is essentially Alcatraz, but friend us so you can join. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother, Chris, a priest. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Kirk. Guess what I'm looking at right now? The screen and my glowing face. No, I'm looking above the screen. Can you see that? What's, what's I, just I beyond do. the screen? I told uh, you. Your backyard. Is it snow? It's, it's a new item in my house. It is a golden a treadmill. Calf. It is a treadmill. Oh, yes, the treadmill. Yeah. We got a treadmill yesterday. Yesterday? Tuesday. We got a new treadmill Tuesday, uh, which is funny, Kirk, uh, because <laughs> it's essentially uh, on Tuesday, we got two things. We, we put our winter tires on the car, not because we need them, but because it was a convenient time for us to just drop. You know, during COVID, it's not a convenient time. Like Costco doesn't have the food court where you can just like go sit and read a book. Um, it's, there's, it's not a good time to just hang out while they switch the tires. Uh, and last year right. we got winter <laughs> tires for the first time and uh, they are a revelation. Uh, they, it's, it's as if we are Honda Odyssey turned into a, an all-terrain vehicle. Uh, it's fan- I recommend winter tires to everybody uh, who lives in a climate with snow. But basically, since where I do got you store a- them in the summer? Uh, in the garage, just stack okay. them up. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, they take up a bit of space, but you know, 
Actually, to be honest, I stored him in a friend's garage. Nice. He has more room, he has more room than I did. Because I was really uh, thinking hard. I was trying to remember. Like, I don't remember a big stack of tires. Yeah, because our, our the third stall of our garage is like bikes and just like fun stuff. Lawn so more, we didn't want tires. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But here, here's just the funny thing about on Tuesday, us getting winter tires and us getting a, a treadmill, which essentially we got the treadmill so that when the snow and ice comes, um, that's my big thing for, for running. So it was, uh, I ran in this, in sub 30 degree weather this morning. I mean, it's like 50 now, but like, uh, it's not the cold that bothers me with running. It's, I don't want to slip and fall on my head. Uh, and, uh, e- even if the rest of the streets are clear, uh, when you go past a shaded spot and there's ice, I just don't want to right. slip on that and fall. So, uh, and usually I have a gym membership, but you know, the vaccine isn't, you know, we made the decision basically to, to get a treadmill because we're not going back to the gym anytime soon, which is a long way of saying that due to the two things that we purchased or made arrangements because of snow, that means that we are guaranteed to not have snow for like eight weeks. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so are you following me? I'm following you. Okay. And it's also fun. Uh, and I, I guess I think back to like the first time I saw a treadmill as a kid. I mean, our kids are fascinated with this thing. Right. I mean, they, uh, Jordan's running suddenly like two miles a day on it. Um, last night, uh, when we told her to get ready for bed, she's downstairs and suddenly like, we hear like, thump, 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 thump. it's like nine at night and she's running on the treadmill. <laughs> Cause it's just fun to like get on there and press buttons and see the thing work. Oh, absolutely. And then Isaac, uh, the first time he got on it, uh, I mean, he was playing around with the incline and the speed. And for him, we, we were just like very careful. We're, you know, cause he's just seven and we're just like, you can't do this without supervision. And I'm watching him and there's kind of this, Oh crap moment where like he slips and falls on his butt and he's just shot off the back of the thing. And <laughs> kind of gives you that look of like, oops, like, am I in trouble? And, you know, were you not scared about being in trouble you know, he might've been more concerned about being hurt, <laughs> but it's that combination of emotions that that's a funny look in your face. Can you think of, can you picture the look on a kid's face where they hurt themselves, but it's their fault. So the emotions are different than just purely being hurt. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. and it changes with each personality. Daphne, yeah. when she was like one, two or three, she's starting to get out of this. Now she would, no matter what she did, smash her face off a corner cabinet, whatever <laughs> she would bounce up and say, I'm okay. And then you'd wait. And sometimes she was okay. And then sometimes pause, pause. I'm not okay. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's when the child knows, like, I kind of did this to myself. Mm-hmm. So like they're insisting everything's all right. Well, they're, well, they're presently assessing like their limbs, their sensation, <laughs> is their blood? Like, and as you know, having two children, like, Children are essentially made out of like a combination Clay, of Teflon kind of, yeah. and um, and like durable plastics and stuff. Like, I mean, they, they literally rub some dirt on it and go back in. That's right. Simon, when he was like 18 months, I remember smashed his, it was like sprinting down the garden section of Home Depot and his face bounced. Like I remember the image, bounced, <laughs> kabam, kabam off of the, as he was sprinting like between plants. Uh, off the off the concrete and like he had a little nosebleed and it was like we like we have to take him to the hospital he broke his nose 
right? That, there has to be like pieces of bone like floating around there. Yeah, he's fine. Like by the time we left Home Depot, it stopped bleeding. Like after his I mean, head bouncing off of concrete. I mean, this is the medical show, but I, I actually do think <laughs> that, that, you know, their, their bones and, and whatnot are, are just a little bit softer and able to kind of absorb more shock than, than older bones. It's by design. Yeah. Have you like, think about like as adults, like even good athletic adults that are in good shape, like twisted knees, twisted ankles. Um, I don't know if you watch like children's sports. Like, so, I mean, my kids are in fourth, fifth and seventh grade. And like watching kind of like intermediate school sports where kids' knees will get landed on in like piles and they'll get like twisted and stuff that would surely um, snap our ACLs. And like, like <laughs> they just like, they scowl, they get up, they limp. And like three minutes later, they've forgotten about They're it. Just back in. Yeah. 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 Or, or even, I guess, uh, professional athletes who in football, you know, they're just down. The game stops <laughs> and they're down for like three minutes and they're like, you know, are you okay? Can you get up? And they're like, I don't know, maybe they get up and kind of walk it off a little bit. And then five minutes later, they're back in the game. Um, one of our uh, favorite slash least favorite uh, Vikings of the last 10 years is Xavier Rhodes, oh, yeah. who would do that like three times a season, like have what would appear to be like a, a season end, or a career ending injury and just be like dying. And then would be back on. And it like, was always after he got torched on a deep ball. Too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course the, I think the funniest version of this was uh, in the NBA finals, Paul Pierce left the court or uh, left uh, in a wheelchair. Right. Yeah. And then re- <laughs> and it came out of the locker room, like five minutes later, went back in the game. It was so strange uh, that he felt the need to to get wheeled off and then run on. Yeah, so so we're we're straying far afield and starting to tell some interesting stories, which is okay. Uh, but this is this all reminds me of uh, the only time that I ever missed time for an injury in high school uh, was my senior year, um, and uh, it was uh, I, mm. I uh, had a high ankle sprain. But two things happened on that play. Um, which is I was breaking up a screen pass and there were, there was like two lead blockers in front and I'm soft anyway. I was always a soft defender. So I wasn't going to like take on two linemen, but I, I mean, it was clear I had to take on the linemen. And so um, I got, like, I got demolished. I got just destroyed as if by a road grader and Kirk, I laid there. Kirk. Yes. We have a picture of this, don't we? Yes, we do. Okay. We're going <laughs> to drop that in, in the Facebook group. <laughs> And, uh, and our assistant coach, Mark Fabish came out and he's like, what hurts? And do you remember what I said? I don't know. Everything. I said, I don't know. <laughs> Cause I was like reassessing, like I had tweaked my back. <laughs> I had tweaked my back. Like my back really hurt. It turns out it wasn't broken or anything. It's just like, I, yeah. it, it was, it was knocked out of whack and like, you know, 18 years old, five days later, you're fine. Um, but I legitimately then did a high ankle sprain, but like I had trouble in the first like 90 seconds accounting for where the pain was coming from because yeah. it was coming from multiple spots. And plus in football, when you get hit hard, like you're kind of dazed, you know, yeah. like you got that metallic taste in your mouth. You remember that? Like when you get hit hard, like your mouth kind of has a metal I, taste. I don't know if I remember that part. <laughs> I was just like, I don't know. I felt like such a wimp. I am. Well, I am but, 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 but even that, Kirk, um, <laughs> a high ankle sprain um, for professional athletes can keep them out five, six yeah, yeah, yeah. or longer. And you were probably back in three. So, you know, yeah. kids are resilient. Yes. Kids are so resilient. That's very true. I think that's, that's our, our grand takeaway here. 
All right. Shall let's we move, move on, on to the gospel? Let's move on to the gospel. Today's gospel reading comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with a camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Sorry, I, I ended with the wrong thing, but that, that is what we you say. You tried to throw me a curveball, and I, I still hit I it. I didn't try. That's, that's what we say during, <laughs> yes. um, during our Sunday services, uh, rather than the word of the Lord. Okay, Kirk, since we're starting at the very beginning of the book of Mark, I think it's a good time to step back and, and think about the entire gospel of Mark. After all, we are in year B. Yeah. In the Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I mean, uh, I mean, it's year B is, is like we have a three year lectionary cycle um, that starts at the beginning. Each cycle starts at the beginning of, of each liturgical calendar year. And um, yeah, so year B is a year that focuses mostly on Mark, but not exclusively, but especially you'll see in ordinary time in the summer, we, we walk through Mark just as we walk through Matthew this year. A lot, lot of John sprinkled in, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, and although, although each of the gospels are anonymous, um, you know, we know them as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, but each of them actually technically are anonymous. Like we don't see... Uh, like we do in the epistles, you know, Paul, an apostle to the churches in Corinth or whatever. We don't see them signed, but very, very early in the church, uh, these were attributed to these people of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, I mean, it's not really um, up for, it's not really debated that these guys are, are the actual authors. Um, Mark is attributed to a man named John Mark, who we see in Acts. Uh, we also see a mention in Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon, which is an underrated book, Kirk. We also see him running naked through the Garden of Gethsemane, right? <laughs> I'm uh, sorry, I don't yes. mean to just derail you. Doesn't tradition hold that that, that the anonymous yeah. man yeah. Is, yeah. is the author himself? All right, yes. go ahead. <laughs> no. Mark does also happen to be, this is something I learned today. Uh, it also happens to be the most common name in the Roman Empire. But, um, but that doesn't mean that these are all different marks. These all um, appear to be the same person and, and have been thought to be the same person. Now, Kirk, there are a few contrarians who point to the Gospel of Mark as their favorite gospel. Yeah. But 
this is a this is a new thing, and and like I said, it is a contrarian view. <laughs> uh, Augustine, who we refer to frequently, um, kind of dismissed it. Uh, you know, he was like, you know, Matthew. It appears that that Matthew took heavily from Mark, and Mark doesn't have a lot of stuff that Matthew doesn't have. But Matthew's more complete. Luke is more complete. John is more theological and interesting. Um, so Augustine didn't have a lot of good things to say. I have a quote somewhere here from him. I'll get to you in a second. But I, I have a bit. I, I have a, a excursus here on 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 Augustine. Um, we refer to Augustine frequently, Kirk. Yeah, uh, he is this giant uh, in the early church and and a bishop in the city of Hippo, which is in the continent of. Africa, North Africa, Africa. modern day would be yeah. Tunisia, right? Tunisia or Libya, so. I think, yeah. Uh, but but certainly uh, ethnic Berber, which would be what, what he is. It's, and it's funny how those who don't know their history and want to take shots at Christianity, um, they like to argue that Christianity is a white person's religion. Right, right. And they don't realize that Christianity coming out of the Mediterranean region, that the, that the early church was multi-ethnic. Uh, mm. And they... And yeah, you any... have to wait 300 years or so to get your first blue-eyed Christian. Right. Yeah. Uh, not 300 years. Um, not. But um, any Jew from any era would be shocked to be con- uh, up until our era. Any Jew would be considered shocked to be considered white. Right. Right. Because they've been persecuted through, for you know thousand over a thousand right. years for not being white. Yeah. There's um, so a call a Jew white today. There's a public intellectual that both you and I really really appreciate. Who, who just loves that he's called white because he's like, my immigrant yeah. milk, like, a, what was he, milk delivering father would have gone to the bar and bought everyone around to drinks if he would have ever been called a white American. Like, he yeah. would have known he would have arrived and he would yeah. know his grandson arrived. But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at Acts chapter two, um, we see um, the multi ethnic church already there. Like on the on the get day of Pentecost, we see all these like different people, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, you know, that whole list, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Phrygia, Pamphylia, uh, Egypt, uh, Libya. We have Africa um, listed uh, there on the day of Pentecost, Cretans, Arabians. Um, and, and so these are some of the, them were observant Jews, not necessarily ethnic Jews, some converts and, and proselytes. It says the proselytes were there among the group that that on the day of Pentecost, uh, became Christians. And so uh, the point being that the church has always been a, a beautiful tapestry of the nations. Yes. And even today, uh, I, I want to say this, that that people consider Anglicanism, like <laughs> ignorant people would consider Anglicanism to be very white. When in fact, your average Anglican, uh, numbers-wise, is an African woman. Yep, yeah. That there are tens of millions of Anglicans in Africa, 18 million in Nigeria, four and a half million in Kenya, 11 million in, in Uganda, um, many, many tens of millions in, in Africa. So anyway, I was talking about Augustine. Um, and like I said, he he kind of didn't have a lot of interest in Mark. And uh, he said Mark himself separately has little to record. That's that's the quote I have is, is, is that like he's just like, yeah, you know. There's very little original there. Right. Um, so anyway, um, Mark himself was a common man with no formal education. And uh, other gospels are written in better Greek. 
Uh, and prior to 1800, scholars had written hundreds of commentaries on Matthew, on Luke, and on John. But uh, prior to 19, uh, prior to 1800, sorry, there were only 20 existing commentaries on Mark. So I mean, this isn't an ancient thing. Like throughout the ages, people just didn't have a big interest in Mark. So it's a contrarian view to say, oh, well, we we love Mark. Mark's in. Um, uh, and uh, again, the, the the Greek isn't all that good. Um, one particular writer uh, and scholar counted uh, what's called. Uh, he said there are 200 harsh constructions. And I'm not smart enough to know what that means linguist linguistically, <laughs> what a harsh construction is, um, but but some sort sort of, of of bad grammar or badish grammar. But Kirk, he's also intriguing. He has a particular style. Uh, he has this yes. common phrase. Uh, can you can you uh, off the top of your head name the common phrase? Immediately. Yep. And <laughs> usually it's it's Kai. Uh, usually it's and immediately. And immediately. Um, and immediately, um, which is. I was hoping you were going to bring this up. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And it's also distinctive from, from Greek literature of the time, but it makes the story dramatic. Yes. Um, it's fairly universally understood that Mark is the first gospel to be written. Um, and think about that for a second. I don't think we put a lot of thought into what that means to be the first gospel. No one had ever written a gospel before Mark wrote a gospel. I mean, so we had these early uh, epistles um, in the church that were circulated, you know, Paul wrote many of those, uh, but, but Paul doesn't say a lot about the life of Christ. Um, well, he, he talks about Christ. He doesn't say much about Jesus. Okay, sure. But let's not separate <laughs> those two things. Right. Okay. Right. Um, th th those are not two different things. Cause that's, I, that's a whole other. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, it, and so the book of Mark, uh, like he sat down to do something that no one had ever done. And like, how do you do it? Where do you start? So this is kind of like an ancient biography, except it skips most of his life. And we, we see that here in Mark chapter one. Uh, we don't have the Annunciation. We don't have a decree going out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. We don't have shepherds in the fields. We don't have Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt. We don't have Jesus teaching people early in temple. We don't have any of that stuff. We begin with this gospel lesson, which I just read, which goes this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it isn't clear if that first verse, if, it's not clear if that's the title of this gospel or if it's just describing what's to follow, uh, if it's like the topic sentence of this thing. But either way, it, it, it is significant. Uh, there's one famous uh, preaching professor at Harvard who said that every preacher immediately prior to stepping up into the pulpit to preach should say to himself or herself, he should say to himself or herself, I have wonderful news to tell these people. That's what the word gospel means. Gospel means good news. And Mark has endeavored to write down the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. But there's another word that stands out in the opening sentence for a couple of reasons. Beginning. Yes. Okay. Yeah, good. So we, we acknowledge that, that Mark isn't the most gifted writer, but, but he's not illiterate, okay? The dude knows how to tell a story, okay? And, and we will see in this book that, that he links stories together dramatically, that he might have a parable here and a parable here that are separated by action in the middle, but he'll use a word to link those things. Um, he wasn't unintelligent, so he isn't saying, like, this is the beginning, I'm going to start now, I will start with the beginning, <laughs> you know, like, 
The first word beginning invites us to think of the whole story that follows as the beginning. Which is kind of interesting when we look at the whole work of Mark. Because Mark doesn't really have an ending. One scholar right. put it this yeah, right. one scholar put it this way. He said, a book with a beginning and its title warns us right at the start not to expect closure at the end. Right? Isn't that kind of interesting? To say that, like, that Jesus brought this kingdom and like everything has changed. And yet, point number two here, the interesting thing with beginning is the symmetry here that he's linking it with Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. Right? What's the first? Uh, well, I guess there's, there is there is a preposition in the beginning. Right. But, but, but the Greek New Testament, old, I'm sorry, the Greek Old Testament would, would have the same word, arche, you know, beginning. In beginning would, would be uh, Genesis. But then here, beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, so, like, in a literary sense, he's doing something very interesting. You know, we have this, this, this uh, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. And then here he's saying, like, this new era, this new epic is starting um, with uh, with Christ. Very interesting. And you may notice that when, when, so the people who really know their Bibles may, or if, if you have a, perhaps a study Bible, you may notice that when he says he's quoting Isaiah, he says, as it is written, Isaiah, the prophet, he's actually mashing together Isaiah with Malachi and uh, Exodus. This isn't a mistake. Right. It's not because he's illiterate. He's not because he, because he's a dummy. Um, he's taking themes from Isaiah, which is um, this part of Isaiah is actually really hopeful, looking forward um, to like the promise of what is to come. Uh, but then, you know, putting in Exodus and Malachi, Malachi is really bleak. Um, so again, we have this very Adventy theme of like the good news of Christ's second coming. Ah, oh, we long for it. But you know, tied in with Malachi, um, which uh, if if you are familiar with Handel's Messiah, you know Malachi, Malachi chapter three. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? A great, a great uh, um, number from from the oratorio, uh, mm-hmm. Handel's Messiah. Recently, we discussed the Advent theme of Christ's second coming being good news for those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb, but but uh, it's judgment as well as good news. Um, so, so we see that here uh, we, with this mashup of, of Isaiah and Malachi um, of, of this quote in verses two and three in, in preparation and expectation. Um, and then we have John appearing, and this is typical of Mark. So he doesn't use the word immediately here, but John gets no backstory. He just right. appears. <laughs> Verse four, John appears. <laughs> um, right to the point, John appeared baptizing. And I guess we'll discuss John's baptism, like the baptism that he gives. We'll probably discuss that a little bit more in January, uh, the, the, the Sunday after, Epiphany, uh, after the Epiphany, or is it the Sunday of Epiphany? Hmm, we'll have to talk about that later, too. Yes. <laughs> the hard um, decisions this, lie ahead. Yeah. So this, this is different, though, than, than Christian baptism, right? Yes, it's a baptism yes. of repentance. Right. Yep. So we'll talk about that more then. Um, but what we see here is that John the Baptist is a big deal. Like what John is doing, like everyone in the region would have heard about. Um, and we see some hyper- hyperbole here. All the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan. 
And something that listeners to our podcast may have noticed is that I am a teacher at heart. So I'm a priest, I'm a pastor, uh, which are actually really the same thing. They come from the same, they have the same etymology. I have many roles as a priest, but I, one of those things I love to do is, is the role of teaching. I love to, to teach people, to equip them to read and understand their Bibles. It's why in this podcast that uh, I'm always talking about the larger context of a passage. In order to understand a particular passage, we, we need to kind of zoom out and, and understand it in context, both of the, the, the larger work, both as of Mark 1, 1 through 8 as part of Mark, but also as part of the entire scripture. Um, I want to equip lay people to open their Bibles and to understand how to read them. And so there are some people who emphasize taking the Bible literally, which isn't a super meaningful word on its own. I mean, what does it mean to take the Bible literally? Uh, we need some other kind of modifiers here right. to really get a sense of what that means. Does it mean that we read biblical metaphors and go all Amelia Bedelia on them? Kirk, do you remember Amelia Bedelia? The I was just the- going to bring up the... the um- <laughs> The pitfalls of, of reading literally is because as humans, we use language in really intricate ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a bunch of different literary devices that we use to convey um, meaning. So I think what we mean when we say literally is like the, the thing I always remember from Amelia Bedelia is let's go hit the road. And then she yeah. went outside with a stick and started pounding on the road. Yeah. Right. But so she's this maid who, is... who took everything, who, who took everything literally. And, and like, turns out we, we use a lot of figures of speeches and that's just part of language. It's not that like, not what we say doesn't have meaning. So <clears throat> what I'm saying is we're not being like super progressive readers of this text and rejecting big parts of it. We're just advocating reading it well, right? Yeah. To understand genre as it was intended. As and it's even within intended. genre. So this here is, is a, a historical account. Mm-hmm. But within a historical account, we, we will see hyperbole. So it's not that that um, Mark is an untrustworthy narrator because literally it's not true that all of Judea, that every single person, but he's what he's saying is that like this was a mass event, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So so like it, it's just important to to understand scripture, um, to to understand the type of literature that that, that it that it is. So to to take a historical account like this and to reject it as history, we're not doing that. But as we understand this as an account of the life of Jesus, we want to read it well and say, okay, well, like we're not going to reject this as, as, as something that happened just because he uses um, hyperbole. Yeah. So this, this, this is a very narrow point I'm making, but I hope it helps us to, to read and defend a, 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 an orthodox understanding of scripture well. Um, so not every single person was coming out, but hordes were. Okay, like masses of people were were coming out for for what John was doing. And so the text closes with John, who I'm emphasizing was a big deal. Like this is a huge uh, moment in society. Everyone was coming out to see him and get baptized. Um, He wanted people to know that all he was doing was preparing the way for someone greater, that he was preparing the way for the coming king. All he is is the herald, like the little guy with the trumpet announcing what is to come, telling everyone that one who is greater, one, what does he say here? That uh, who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And again, to under to, to, to understand this in context, uh, of course, uh, feet were considered very dirty. And <clears throat> when, that's why it's shocking that Jesus was willing to wash their feet because like walking out, all day in this culture, um, at the end of the day, your feet would be dirty. So like 
to to stoop down to untie a sandal would be servant's work. And and uh, John is saying, I'm not even worthy to be a servant. Um, I'm just washing your bodies, um, but he's going to come and wash you with the Holy Spirit and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this, this is a great Advent reading. Uh, this is a season of expectation, and John is getting everybody ready to welcome the king and the kingdom that he's bringing. Amen. And that's all, and that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Sorry, awkward transition. Go ahead, go. Yeah, so I have a couple of questions for you. Um, first of all, uh, I've been compelled by commentary, uh, preaching that's uh, suggested Mark will be unlocked for you if you see Mark is writing Jesus as the reluctant action hero. Mm. I mean, so there are two things going on there. One is first the reluctance. Um, there was a scholarly trend, I think that was super popular, like 150 years ago, called the Mark in Secret. Mm. And I don't know necessarily that it's been debunked. Perhaps it's just more been de-emphasized. Um, all the gospels, uh, in all the gospels, Jesus um, exhorts his disciples, it's not my Don't time tell anyone. Don't, Don't tell, tell anyone. Yeah. Um, but that is particularly explicit in Mark, in Mark, right? So so you have this archetype of um, the reluctant hero who who he's been called to a task and um, and 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 is, is, is reluctant. You also have that in, in his impatience. Jesus has a unusually impatient edge in Mark. Um, and that combined with this use of immediately you have the sense of an action hero. And it's just short. It's just short. It's compact mm -hmm. in construction. Yeah, and one thing that I had my notes for, for last week, you know, our, our reading the little apocalypse came in uh, Mark 13. Yeah. I mean, by Mark 11, I think you're in the last <laughs> week of his life. Right. By the 11th chapter. Yeah. And as we'd been reading through Matthew, it took to what, Matthew 24? 20, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, no, 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 no. Like, uh, I think... 20 he's in jerusalem right. yeah matthew had more stuff to get off his chest yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but so mark is um mark is super compact you're right tells an effective story of a reluctant action hero um the common uh the common title that mark gives jesus is the son of man um and so you get as well here a sense of reluctant you get less exultant language than you would in in luke and Mar and Matthew, and then certainly in John, where John kind of a, a higher Christology rose forth. Um, but as as you'll see when you get to the Passion, according to, uh, to according to Mark, um, there is divinity. Jesus' um, divinity rose forth there as well. So this isn't to say that that Mark doesn't emphasize Jesus' divinity, but you do get this action hero. So it's fun. So if you're reading Mark this year, um, notice that and have fun with that. And maybe maybe this might be kind of a key that unlocks Mark for you as you read it. Um, but this is kind of um, the, the rhythm that our lectionary set up, the second and sometimes and third Sunday of Advent really are John the Baptist Sundays, right? Mm. I mean, that's kind of the theme here. And uh, if we think of John the Baptist in terms of his role as a key character um, in Advent, um, I, uh, you notice here, where is John the Baptist? Where do people have to go to see John the Baptist? They have to go into the desert, right? Mm -hmm. They have to leave the comfortable confines of Jerusalem. I mean, this is what we as believers are called to do as well in Advent. We're called to follow out into the desert um, to hear the prophetic cry of a 
sort of crazy person, right? Um, he's wearing this camel's yeah. hair, and what's he eating? Locusts uh, and wild honey. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I've had it explained to me um, that the, the the valley in the Jordan River, it really is desert-like. It's not, it's it's not lush, and it doesn't have plants and trees like Jerusalem did. Um, and so the people that would go there, the Essenes, um, is, is John the Baptist, is it just assumed he's an Essene or do we know that he was? Um, I, I'm not sure, but, but Kirk's referencing um, this more fairly aesthetic, aesthetic yeah. yeah. Uh, pe people who kind of denied pleasure, earthly pleasures and lived, lived a very Spartan existence. Yeah. Those were the Essenes, yeah. So if you're out I mean, in the desert- Certainly they're, 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 they're both like, had that in common that they were into asceticism. Yeah. If you're in the Judean desert at night and there's not a cloud in the sky and no one's around and there's no light pollution and you see the starry heavens radiant above um, and you're receiving visions from God, um, <laughs> you, can, you, you can see the apocalyptic uh, story of creation dancing in the heavens mm. as you see galaxies and stars. And um, this is where we're called to go as believers. Um, in Advent is we're called to go out into the desert. And frankly, I think desert is, um, is both literal, right? Um, so uh, in Isaiah 40, um, which is the Old Testament reading, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Uh, that, that, that is surely prophetic of John the Baptist. But how about as well the desert of our hearts, Christopher? Mm. <laughs> make mm. straight in the desert of our hearts a highway for our God. And I think that's part part of the call for us in Advent as well, um, is our, des our, our, our hearts are deserts. And we need to pray that God may make straight a highway there, that every valley in our, in our hearts be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven places made plain, and that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, um, that, that, that God may take up residence there. Yeah, so um, that's, my, that's, that's my thought. I love I love the interplay of this text and Isaiah 40, which mm. Christopher, um, in this era of COVID, and everything's just kind of smaller and shorter and less singing, and there are fewer items in our service. I hate to say we've cut out our Old Testament readings, mm. so we only do two lessons, mm. um, and so we won't be reading this 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 Sunday. So I wanted to talk about it here. Yeah. And again, if you love the Messiah. Um, you'll love this because uh, the, the first thing that you hear a voice sing is comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, Seth, your God. And that is something that we will have, have sung as a solo, an offertory solo at church. So that'll be really neat. Yeah. I, I don't know how familiar the Messiah is to people, to our listeners, but uh, it is, it's such a wonderful work. Um, and, and one thing I love about it is <clears throat> how like it helps make you biblically literate mm -hmm. um as, as how you have all these great texts from the old testament um kind of uh prefiguring um and, and preparing you for for the arrival of christ it's great love it yeah yeah any final thoughts before we move on to our theology segment um you talked uh really quickly uh at the beginning about the kind of this messianic secret thing. Yeah. I just, that, that, that just reminded me of, of back in seminary in our new Testament literature class. 
um, of how we had an exercise where um, uh, just in, in class, like find the divinity of Christ in the synoptic gospel. So that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where it's all over John, which is, right. you know, John is, is yeah, doing yeah. something different in John assumed the first three gospels, um, but, but find it in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, it's a really interesting exercise. Um, Cause again, uh, you, you have basically uh, skeptical sources pointing out the divinity of Christ who, you know, for instance, who can forgive sin except God alone. <laughs> It's it's a really interesting thing, um, and and there's a lot that can be said about that. And, and maybe uh, when we have a scholar on, they can they can talk about this whole idea of like why why was Jesus so hush hush? Was it simply to preserve his life so that he could um, do these things before going to the cross? Because we see this dramatic um, shift, I think, in both Luke and Matthew, where he set his face to Jerusalem. Yeah, but up until that point, it wasn't his time, and and even. Um, you know, in, in John, we have the interesting comment that he makes to his mother, that Jesus makes to Mary um, at, at, at the wedding at Cana, where he says, it's not my time yet. Um, what does he mean by that? Because he kind of, it seems to change his mind. I've been um, hung up on, there's, there's a particular verse in Mark that I've been hung up on, uh, really hung up on. Like, I don't understand why other people don't see it when Mark is held up as evidence um, that the early church, the earliest church, had a low view of Jesus' divinity or low Christology. And it's uh, it's from the Passion narrative. It's So it's Mark chapter 14, verse 62. Again, the high priest asked him and said to him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, <laughs> I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What further need have we of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. I, is so that not he said it very clearly, and it was clear that everyone there understood because right. they're like, this is blasphemy. <laughs> yeah. Kirk, verse 62, that is a great segue. Coming with the clouds of heaven. Today for our theology segment, we are going to discuss my favorite Advent hymn, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. Not only is it my favorite Advent hymn, I would venture this thesis. It is the perfect, the perfect Advent hymn. Now, Kirk, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting being an Anglican. I'll just say that. Um, be, because, you know... Um, it's not that we're more ecumenical than other people, but like we, we kind of gather um, from many traditions, right? We look at the, at, at the Roman Catholics and, and the Lutherans and the Calvinists and, and, and even the Orthodox. And we're like, okay, like we, we could see value in, in all of it because we are small C Catholics. Um, that though we are separated um, as far as uh, the church polity, um, 
we are one church, one capital C church. And, and so uh, you and I listen to all sorts of podcasts and, and like, and, and read books of, of, of people from various backgrounds. And, and uh, it's interesting listening to the Lutherans and the Calvinists or the reformed um, capital R reformed um, argue about <laughs> hymnody. Okay. Um, right. Because for, for um, the reformed, uh, hymnody and singing in church is all about the glory of God because everything for them is about glor- glorifying God. In fact, God saves us simply to glorify himself, right? Um, in, in the reformed, um, uh, in reformed theology. Um, whereas in, in, in the Lutheran uh, circles, um, hymnody is more about uh, teaching, about the didactic value of like doctrine in hymns. Uh, am I way off with this, Kirk? Uh, um, I, I thought you were going to say, um, whereas the emphasis in reform theology, in reform hymnody is the glory of God, because that is kind of, that was Calvin's great aha. Um, in, right. in Lutheran in, theology, it's the cross. So okay. it's the but, cross, but, but, but yeah. like, it seems like like they value the didactic um, and like both kind of. Are, are you like, saying reformed theology isn't didactic? <laughs> no, but I'm saying like the purpose I don't mean to of, derail of, you. of hymnody. Um, but, but what I'm saying is, is this hymn is like the via media of hymnody. <laughs> It both glorifies God um, in, in all of its, in, as we go through the stanzas here, we will see awesome mm. poetry about, um, I mean, the final verse, yea, amen, let mm. all adore thee, high on thine eternal throne, Savior, take the power and the glory, claim the kingdom for thine own. I mean, it, it, it's a powerful text of, of glorifying God. Um, but it, it, it's also so rich in scripture that it, it's, it's extremely didactic and, um, I would say Christocentric and cross-centric. I mean, we have him pierced and nailed to a tree um, in verse two. So um, with that introduction, Kirk, I, I want to hand it over to you to tell me, uh, to, to agree with me uh, about why this is the best Advent hymn. Yeah, so I agree with you that it is, and I have thought that it is for, I don't know, five to 10 years. It's just become crystal clear that this is my Advent anthem. This is my jam. This is, this is, this is my confession, my Advent confession. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I didn't realize to what degree that um, so many other uh, liturgical Christians who observe Advent were with me. Um, and I, I just posted something very briefly on, on, on Twitter last weekend and um, just got a, got a bunch of positive uh, response like, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, amen. And then talking with some friends as well off social media, just via text message and on the phone over the weekend, I began to realize that um, this is just kind of the case for so many people. And if it's not for you, I want it to be for you. And so Christopher and I want to talk about it. I, I want to set a little background, Christopher, um, by talking about Charles Wesley. Uh, Charles Wesley is such an enormous gift from God. And the Wesleys are, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, are as well. Um, in some ways, it's hard to talk about them as Anglicans without um, a, no- a note of tragedy. Um, John Wesley, um, a generation after the Baptists sort of ab- accidentally broke English Christianity, uh, John Wesley made sure that English Christianity was broken. And by broken, I mean fractured. 
so the Catholicity of English-speaking Christianity was was kind of forever riven, um, but it, but it's okay. So John and Charles Wesley are two brothers that you see at the beginning of the 17th century, um, and they're sons of a high church English um, Church of England uh, priest, and uh, they are kind of raised in the typical the old high church tradition, often called high and dry, before the kind of the the, the Catholic renewal movement of the 1800s. And uh, they, they start in Oxford, they start a holy club uh, in 1729 um, because they kind of see latitudinarianism. They see kind of lax, what we might call liberalism, kind of uh, sneaking into Oxford. And uh, all the holy club did, it might sound sort of pharisaical to, our, to your ears, uh, and maybe you've been taught that it was pharisaical. All they were actually asking people to do was to observe. These are, so it, to be a student in Oxford at the time mean, meant you had to be in holy orders, right? So these were all clergy. And all they were asking people to do was to observe prayer book. <laughs> so to say morning prayer, to say evening prayer, to fast on Fridays, to fast on, like, on, the, um, on the vigil for holy days. That's all they were asking for just to do the prayer book observances, right? Which is actually um, not in America, but in England, um, you make vows <laughs> at your ordination to observe all those things, right? So people weren't, and they just weren't, and they just kind of, it was slovenly uh, assumed that, that no one would. So they formed this holy club. So they have that aspect of high churchmanship, but then it's leavened with something. Both of them have what we might now call an evangelical conversion of the heart. In John Wesley's great and famous words, his heart was strangely warmed. And Charles Wesley experiences something similar. Uh, and so you have the best that Anglicanism has to offer, right? Which is kind of um, high, high church observant, observance leavened with evangelical fervor, right? Wouldn't you say, Christopher, that's kind yeah. of, um, when we yeah. get it right, that's where we get it right. You get yeah. the nexus of those two things. And that's what Charles Wesley has. And that blares forth in this great Advent hymn. Because in many Christian traditions nowadays, um, you couldn't possibly sing this because there is no season of Advent. There is no specifically apocalyptic Sundays in which you just spend this time in prayer and anticipation looking to the skies. And so thank you, God, for Charles Wesley in this regard, that at the man of the hour um, that he wrote this. So I love it, Christopher, via media. That's in, this is another aspect in which it's a great via media hymn. Um, it's actually- Via media um, is Latin for middle way. Yeah, yeah. Which, it, sorry that I didn't define that term. Yeah, or as you like to point out, uh, was it Richard Hooker or John Jewell um, like to call the Church of England a golden mediocrity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just in, the, in the way that language changes. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. mediocre used to mean in between, right? Right. <laughs> not too high. So mediocrity didn't mean like lame. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, yeah, lame is probably a bad word, like uh, bad. Um, it, it meant medium, like middle. Yeah. There's something beautiful about like Anglicanism as a golden mediocrity, both yeah. like in the old <laughs> sense and in like the current sense. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyhow. Let's look at this. Um, let's look at this briefly, stanza by stanza. Yeah. Um, uh, the first verse. Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain, thousand thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of his train. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. God appears on earth to reign. 
Mm. Um, and listener, you might ask, uh, what's the text here? Well, there is a text. Um, it's Revelation 1-7. But even more accurately than to say a text, uh, Charles Wesley, and this is evidence that we stand on the shoulders of giants. We are gnomes. We are little pygmies standing on the shoulders of giants. Charles Wesley um, is weaving together a symphonic tapestry of scripture. And uh, we'll touch on several of these scriptures. Um, there are a bunch of them. And um, part of the problem for us as modern um, singers or listeners or readers is that we might become increasingly unfamiliar with the King James. So yeah. I'm going to cite these texts in their King James version so that you'll hear kind of what Wesley is, is citing as well. Um, but it's Revelation 1-7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Which we'll see, we'll we'll see the piercing and the and the wailing in is that verse two or three? Uh, yeah, that's verse two. That's the next verse. Uh, but there's also, uh, I haven't seen this anywhere, but I've but I've seen this connected in services, people who do Advent liturgies, and I I feel like Daniel seven is lurking behind here as well. So I think this Definitely. is worth this is worth reading as well. In Daniel seven thirteen and fourteen, I saw in the night visions, and behold. One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed." So you see these apocalyptic themes, right? The coming in the clouds, every eye seeing him, uh, that which was previously veiled, right? We Christopher, you, you just mentioned in our previous segment, um, the messianic secret. When he comes again in great glory, there is no messianic secret, right? In fact, those who do not confess him as the Christ, as we read in Revelation 1-7, um, uh, shall wail because of him. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah any other yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a two parts of advent that, that, that we kind of emphasized last week is that is is that like it's this glorious and great thing he's coming in great power and glory but also in judgment um there are right. two sides of that yeah right yes the second coming the the two things are absolutely two sides of the same coin um it shall be a, a great those whose names are written in the book of the lamb um those who are baptized in his names uh, in his name, who, for whose his name will be uh, on their foreheads, um, it'll be a glad thing. Mm -hmm. um, and yet those who did not keep oil in their lamp, who mm -hmm. do not have the wedding garments, who are not prepared, um, they shall wail because of him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's this crazy, uh, I don't know what the word is. It's, it's not, it's not, um, they aren't at odds. It's just strange that Christianity is both radically inclusive and radically exclusive. Yeah. And don't yeah, you so feel like, like it's yeah, like it's radically inclusive like anybody has access to this. Anybody. But 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 um what we see more than anything um is that uh you know in Romans 1 we see uh the worst thing that can happen is for God to turn us over to our sin. 
Mm, right. Like the Amen. reward for sin is more sin. Amen. Um, and, and he, and, what is it? What does Romans say? And he gave them unto their own desires. So, something like that. I mean, that's, yeah. if, if that's not it, literally it's a paraphrase. Yeah. yeah. Like to be turned over to your own sin is, is the worst thing that can happen. And, and it's right. Like the, the, the door is wide open. Come on in. But so many people in their sin don't choose that. Um, so it's, it's, it's radically inclusive, but it's also radically exclusive in that like Jesus is the only way, like this mm -hmm. is the only, like his work is the only thing uh, that is going to make his work on your behalf and, and, and faith in him. Um, yeah. is, is the only thing on the last day that's going to make it good news for us. Yeah. So if we could distill Advent down, the, the call of Advent, I think it's probably this first first verse. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. Our eyes are on the skies. Our mm -hmm. eyes are on the skies, literally, uh, but, 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 but our, the eyes of our heart um, anticipate the coming of the Lord. Uh, and we should touch upon um, the goofiness of the first verse in various hymnals very briefly. Um, I had hypothesized to you previously um, that that's, that line, once for favored sinners slain, um, was, uh, was Wesley's kind of a Calvinist. Um, he, he lets his inner Calvin slip and show, or maybe not that slip, but just kind of double predestination is implied there. Um, and in fact, our hymnal, Christopher, the 1982 Episcopal hymnal, changes that to once for our salvation slain. I know Lutheran hymnals change it to once for every sinner slain. Um, hmm. But I, but I today was was uh, was reading Will Whedon, uh, a, a very good current uh, Lutheran theologian in America, and he was pointing out. He said, "No, no, 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 no. There is not a sinner for whom our Lord is not an advocate." Um, mm -hmm. Jesus is for all sinners. <laughs> yeah. He favors all sinners. So I don't know what mess what Wesley had in mind. I don't know what the authorial intent is necessarily there. Maybe, maybe, maybe listener, one of you does, but I like that. There is not a sinner for whom yeah. our Lord is not an advocate. Yeah. 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 And what you're saying, Kirk, is, is, is that the um, Calvinist view of double predestination um is not what he's advocating here yeah, yeah. The, the idea that only certain sinners will ever really have access right um yeah yeah uh any other thoughts on verse one before we go into verse two nope let's look at verse two every eye shall now behold him robed in dreadful majesty those who set at naught and sold him pierced and nailed him to the tree deeply wailing Deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. Um, there's a, a great uh, modern hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, that has this haunting line. Christopher, do you know it? It was my sin that held him there. Yes, it was my sin that held him there. Um, there's this. Until it was accomplished. Until it was accomplished, right. Uh, the, the atonement. The cross, Christ's cross, um, his piercing, his nailing, is necessary, not just because of the sin of Jesus' contemporaries, though their sin did make his uh, crucifixion necessary, but it's the sin of all humanity across time and space, including yours and mine. Um, and uh, and so, <laughs> those who said it not and sold him, um, that's us too. <laughs> That's us too. We, we pierced and nailed him to the tree. Um, if 
the atonement would not be necessary if we were now saints. <laughs> so, well, and, and you remember the story uh, of the passion of the Christ, right? Yeah, that, go ahead. Um, that the hands. Uh, oh, yes, yes. We see these hands pounding nails into Jesus uh, of, the, of this Roman soldier um, that, in fact, those were the hands of Mel Gibson, um, you know, a, a guy who has unfortunately in the, since the passion of the Christ has had um, some low points where mm -hmm. um, some recordings of a phone call where, where yeah. he, he both had um, misogynistic and anti-Semitic. Um, he, he's a sinner like you and me. Um, and, and you and I are not his judge. Uh, God alone is his judge. Christ alone is his judge. Um, but he, in, in, in him pounding the nails into Christ, uh, Christ's hands, um, it's clear that he understood something. Yes. Yeah. About his sin. Yeah. And yeah. about Christ's work. Yeah. Kirk, Kirk, I love, I love this, um, this language, um, robed in dreadful majesty. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that captures very evocatively this sense of, of, of this being both glorious and, and, and dreadful for those who, um, who are not covered by the blood of the lamb. Yeah. And this is also, um, John 19, um, uh, so, so John's passion has a, uh, um, this is an echo of that as well. John 19, 37 says, and again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced, right? So this isn't, this isn't just revelation. And I believe that is, is that from Zechariah as well? I think I'd written this down. Yes. Zechariah 12, 10, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Yeah, so the, 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 the picture of dreadful majesty, um, it will be very apparent um, uh, at, at his second coming um, that he, he, is, he is the pierced one the pierced mm -hmm. lamb. And that, that language does exist in Revelation as well, that there's a sense of these two events um, being simultaneous and being visible simultaneous to the observer, right? Um, that the lamb that is slain, like slain before the foundation is of the earth, right? So, so his slainness, something about his slainness will be evident um, at his second coming. Um, and, and we'll get in verse three to how it's beautiful, but we have to acknowledge that it, um, it is a reminder of, of, of our sin, right? Our treason against God. Yeah. Yeah. But I do, I do love that. That is such an image, isn't it? Dreadful yeah. majesty. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Uh, verse three, those dear, dear tokens of his passion, still his dazzling body bears cause of endless exaltation to his ransomed worshipers with what rapture, with what rapture, with what rapture, gaze we on those glorious scars oh and this this is something where uh there's been much i i should have done better preparation um one of my favorite english poets john dunn uh is stirred up to beautiful language um when he talks specifically about the wounds of christ mm. and this is a, a whole genre of christian literature as well um, the sense that to the true believer, to the one who recognized the depth of his sin and the length of his salvation, the, um, the, the, the wounds 
that were necessary, that were the cause of that, that salvation, take on a beauty, right? Mm. They take on a beauty. And so his dazzling body um, he still bears those scars, right? And how does uh, Charles Wesley describe those? Glorious. Gaze we on those glorious scars. Well, and it's interesting. Uh, we, I think we've talked, uh, one of the themes that we've discussed is the, the upside down nature of, of Christ's kingdom. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes. First, you'll be last, last will be first. Christ came as a servant, um, that, that he humbled himself. And in John, we see this interesting theme of, of Christ's glorification because mm -hmm. in fact, in, in, in his suffering and death on the cross. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's coming through here. Um, that, that mysteriously Christ's glory is glorification. The glorification of Christ is, is his suffering and death. Yeah. And, um, Christopher, do you recall you, this episode exhorted me to never separate mm. the Christ of the gospel right. and the Jesus of the gospel, right? With that is to say- The, the, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith is right. what I was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, another way of looking at that is his divinity and his humanity. And right. we confess that he is fully God and fully man. And so when he comes back, it won't be like he, he shed his humanity, like an ill-fitting suit that he wore for 33 years. Um, it'll be the same body, glorified, changed, um, prepared for eternity, but still uh, the same in that you will be able to see his scars. And um, what is the thing that causes St. Thomas in John 20 to say, my Lord, mm. my God? It is those glorious scars, right? Yeah. And upon seeing those glorious scars, he doesn't say, oh gosh, what a tragedy, but rather he says, my Lord and oh, my, my God. God. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? Mm. With well, and it's interesting, Kirk. Uh, I think you and I were both raised with with the idea that the crucifixes were Catholic things. That, right. Yeah. That, that we that that we um we have empty crosses because Christ is raised. Um, but that's that's like that to my ears today almost seems Gnostic. Is that right. like um the beauty of the incarnation is that we worship a, a like a human face of Christ that one that bore our yeah. our sin on the cross and so um. A, a crucifix is, is a wonderful devotional thing to gaze upon, mm -hmm. to wear, to consider. Um, I mean, so a, if, if you're a Reformation person and you say the cross alone is our the theology, the cross is our theology, um, or whether you're a person who um, isn't Lutheran, but, but uh, and is skeptical of crucifixes, I, I encourage you, and I think we've done this before, but yeah. you know, if, if you didn't listen to that episode, I encourage you to, to consider um a crucifix to consider Christ on the cross that that's like, that's the face of God. And that's a powerful thing. This human face, you're looking at God there who suffered for you. Yeah. I mean, Martin Luther said, you want to see God, mm. you need the hairy God. He is the one oh. for you. Um, when we constantly, I think in the American church, we want to get around Jesus to gaze at the father mm. and um, the, the, the father, I think is saying, this is me. This is me for you. You want to see me? Like, take, eat, drink this cup, um, gaze on my glorious scars. Yeah, I, and I mean, I've said this before, but I'll say this again. Um, the, the, the idea that we have an empty cross because Jesus raised and that's our salvation is a category error. It's not the empty cross that will raise you in the last day. It's the empty tomb. <laughs> so you yeah, want to have something yeah. empty on your round your neck? Have an empty tomb <laughs> around your neck, okay? <laughs> but when we confess the cross, we're confessing... Um, 
that place where our sins were atoned for, right? We're confessing the atonement where our sins were paid for. And um, you need a bleeding God on a cross for your sins to be canceled. <laughs> so that's what the cross needs to be full, not empty. <laughs> if you want your sins canceled. Canceled sins. That's, that's uh, that comes from another Wesley hymn. Oh, 4,000. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's Praise. recognize that language. Yeah. A lot and honor to Charles Wesley. All right. Last verse. Uh, uh, Kirk, Kirk, real quick. Um, yes. I had a comment, which will come to me by the time I'm killing time. All right, Haber interrupter. When it comes to you, just boldly interrupt. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah, amen. Let all adore thee. High on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory. Claim the kingdom for thine own. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Thou shalt reign and thou alone. I, the same Lutheran theologian, Will Whedon. Kirk, I'm going to yes! interrupt you now. Yeah, I'm going to interrupt go. you now. <laughs> it came to me halfway through that verse. But like this, this, like I want to, I want to end the podcast on that crescendo and not on my like side path. Yeah, okay. so pursue your side path, sir. You and I have a mutual friend who, um, looking at the the corpus of of Chris Tomlin and his 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 worship songs that he is, uh, you talked about the kind of how we want to get around Jesus to the Father. Yeah. Um, and of course, a lot of Chris Tomlin's lyrics are actually written by um, Louis Giglio, I think is his name. He's he's a, a an evangelical yeah. mega church pastor in yeah. in I think Atlanta. Yeah. Um. But 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 uh, our, this friend's criticism of of Tomlin's lyrics is they're just so father centric. Like there's not a lot of Jesus there. And I mean, it would be one thing if we had one song. Uh, again, in our hymnody, we don't um we don't want them to be love songs that like are are to a nameless God. You know, and, and that's kind of a, a big weakness of like if you were to listen to, to you know, we mentioned uh, K Love. Did you mention K, K Love Blues? I think yeah. Um, is it is it like kind of one of the weaknesses is is that like they some of them sound like love songs, and then a lot of them like they don't like. It's not that they're theologically uh, vapid. It's that um, sometimes they're just to a nameless god. Right. So, so, so they may have, they may be totally theologically on, and okay, but like we want to sing to our triune God, mm-hmm. praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit. So, I mean, you can have one song that, that that's not Christocentric or spirit centric, um, that is to the Father. But when you look at an entire um, artist's work, and if it's all like Father centric, kind of at the expense of Jesus, like that, that's an issue. And and, and um, so anyway, I just I just wanted to mention that that like the the issue that you pointed out of of skipping jesus right and going right. to the father again yeah. we, we worship the trinity um but yeah. but but jesus uh we want the hairy god we want to worship the yes. hairy god you know because it's good news for all kinds of reasons that like yeah. what wasn't assumed was not saved like like um we should gaze upon jesus and and love him and worship him and amen him. amen and i think that has to do with the sacrament the non-sacramental nature of um of american evangelical worship so it's lost, totally lost the sense of mediation. Sure. Um, uh, I, I think there's just the idea. I mean, you, you, you see it in the way you walk into uh, contemporary churches. Um, there's no sense of mediated holiness at all. There's the sense you could stroll up to daddy God, um, mm. which that is not biblical. 
<laughs> uh, and people, uh, how often has it been thrown in your face, Christopher? The, the, the curtain in the temple was torn. Didn't you know we have access to the father now? Oh yeah. Through no, the sun. Through the sun, <laughs> through the bleeding, bleeding flesh of the sun, which you must take and eat for the forgiveness of your sins, which you probably haven't in your like auditorium church in a long time. But okay, now, now I'm just and, becoming and, like, narrowly Christ sectarian. Christ is our advocate with the Father, you know, like, yes. yeah, so we have access um, to the Father through the Son, and, and it is interesting that, like, Jesus came and tabernacled with us, and yeah. and, and yet um, most, of, most of what we see of the Father um, is, is fearsome and not inaccessible, but, like, you know, uh, God told Moses, like, yeah, you can't really look at me. But, right, you know, right. You can maybe see my feet, but like, you know, here, here, stay in this cleft of the yeah, rock yeah, yeah. and look at my backside as it goes yeah. past. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Okay. So verse four, ye amen, let all adore thee high on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory, claim the kingdom for thine own. Oh, come quickly. Oh, come quickly. Oh, come quickly. Um, well, I want to say everlasting God come down because yes. I'm used to singing it that way. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, the text you have here is yeah. Alleluia, Alleluia, thou shalt reign and thou alone. Yeah. And you and I were trying to do some detective work and trying to figure out What's why the original there text? Diff yeah. different versions. Yeah. Both are great. Um, yeah. they're, they're slightly different emphases, but I, I, you and I couldn't discern a, a theological ax that anyone was grinding. Um, it's both uh, a stirring doxology, mm -hmm. um, praising God for his return for his, how do you say it, parousia? Right, yeah. for the appearing um, on the last day. Um, Christopher, uh, a Lutheran theologian, Will Wheaton, the, the, the one that I already mentioned, um, in, his, in his kind of commentary on this hymn, it's newly popular in Lutheran circles because in their most recent hymnal in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, they finally paired this text with the proper tune, Helmsley which we Anglicans have been properly singing forever, right? Um, and in their previous hymnals, it was to the tune Picardy, um, which most of you listeners would know to uh, the tune that's commonly sung to Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent. So it would sound like this. Um, it would go, Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Um, and when you get to this final stanza, it it properly stirs when you sing it to the proper tune. And Christopher, you and I were talking pre-show about how certain when certain texts and tunes come together, um, they take off in a happy serendipity, and in a divine serendipity. And surely this is the case, Christopher. Every time we get to this fourth verse, I am singing this as loudly, <laughs> as uh, immodestly, probably immodestly, I'm probably bellowing as I can because my heart is crying this out. Mm. Savior, take the power and glory. Claim the kingdom for thine own. Um, this to me, what comes to mind is um, the passage in Revelation um, where uh, um, around, uh, around the glassy sea, when we are casting our crowns before thee, um, so there's a, the sense that all earthly honor and authority on the last day, we properly bow before the right and true king. Um, Christopher, you and I have, have spoken recently um, uh, that all Christians in, in the long run are monarchists, right? Mm. <laughs> 
And uh, it'll be abundantly clear that at, at the last day, this is the good king. And um, we will beg him, take, take the orb, take the scepter, take the throne, take the crown. We will gladly kneel before you. We will beg him to take his power and glory. Um, and you shall reign and you alone. And it'll, that will be the cry of our heart rightfully and truly on the last day. And, um, and this is also where it becomes clear in Advent. It's not really, uh, it's, it's not St. Martin's Lent. It's not a Lent. We're saying, Alleluia, 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 which in Lent we don't, right? We don't, we hold back uh, in, that, in that great cry of praise. So this is where we get to bellow forth in anticipation. It's not really penitential in that way, so. Yeah, just a real quick comment on um, how it is paired with other tunes. Uh, one of the things that was shocking to me, um, raised with one hymnal growing up, um, and then discovering other traditions, and I'm kind of a hymnal collector now. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> like every time I collect, I get a new hymnal from a different tradition. I'm just shocked to find um, th that, that like somebody took uh, the texts and the, the melodies and like, put them in a Yahtzee cup and shook them up and rolled them and, and matched <laughs> yes. them up that way. Yeah. Um, so the, 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 way, the way it works is um, if, if, if you have a hymnal, you'll see numbers at the bottom, like, you know, 8.7.8.7 right. or something. And it's like the syllables per, per line. Mm -hmm. And um, so you can actually do a particular text with many different um, tunes. And, uh, and so some people do that. And, and uh, some are better and some are worse and some are kind of the same because like not all like hymnody should reflect um, all the emotions and um, it, it shouldn't be just exaltation, just joy and happiness. I mean, we should have the whole range. And so like, we don't always need a tub thumper like this one to be, um, to, to be uh, just enraptured by the glory of God. But this tune in the key of G, um, G major with no accidentals, Kirk, you pointed out. Yes. Um, there's something um, just beautiful and exulting uh, that, that matches this text. Um, and Kirk, I th this fourth verse, I, I've always struggled to sing out with my voice um, because often tears are in my oh, eyes. And, yes. And, um, and my voice is kind of faltering. Um, longing for Christ to take the power and the glory and, mm. and to come, come back and to claim his kingdom. Um, uh, there's a lot of joy and good things in this world, but there's a lot of sorrow. Mm -hmm. um, and as we consider his return, we long for it. And we say, Oh, come quickly, Lord. Um, oh, come, come back. Is today the day. Um, and this is the season for that to look at the horizon in the morning and, and to say, Lord, today is today the day. Yeah, yeah. You and I both know a, a, a preacher that is that has shaped us and molded us, who said that's that's Advent. <laughs> is today the day, Lord? <laughs> Lord, come today. Or uh, at the very end of Revelation, John writes, "Even so, Lord, come quickly." Yeah. Well, which which is um like I said, the second to last line. Oh, come quickly. Mm -hmm. Oh, come quickly. Oh, come quickly. Everlasting God, come down. Yeah. Yeah, there was, I had one final thought. Oh man, this is the theme for this show is profound thoughts that come later. <laughs> uh, oh, I know what I was going to ask you. 
Um, I I ended last show. I, I put uh, Lily comes with clouds descending um, to end the show. Should I include it again? <laughs> Did oh, I yeah. do it twice? Oh, for sure. Okay. All yeah. right. That, I mean, well, we that talked made, about it. We got to play it. That that made that easily. Um, I'll yeah, just say and, this. And and, and Kirk, uh, recently we we talked about um, a hymn where like you drop out. Uh, this this is a perfect hymn. I did not complete my thought there. We talked about recently where uh, you drop the instrumentation or at it, it least the volume where this, this third hymn, or I'm sorry, the third verse of this hymn is one where certainly it's, it's, it's thematic and powerful to, um, to, to drastically reduce um, dynamics um, on the third verse. Yeah. Um, because like, we're talking about Christ's wounds and then in the fourth verse um we're talking about his return claim thy kingdom for thine own so um i don't remember if that's exactly how um uh, the version that you included last week uh, did it but uh, i'm sure it is yeah i mean so the youtube is a is a beautiful thing um i've listened to this 20 times in the last week <laughs> um in a bunch of different recordings and uh uh you know, we, we Anglicans, we have, we have our, we have our warts. We're kind of limp-wristed in a bunch of things and we're wishy-washy and I hem and haw and it's kind of a, an Anglican trademark. Um, but one thing where I think, um, one, one gift that, that we have to offer to Christendom is, um, the, hymns like this are an example of this, is if you ever put, if you ever fill a church with Anglicans and you crank the organ, we'll still sing louder than the organ. And if you, if you look at, if you go on YouTube and go to any Lessons and Carol service, you will see there's something about this hymn uh, at an Advent Lessons and Carol service that really pulls out of people something. And it's interesting. I, I don't know if, I, I mean, we're Americans. And so you and I, we're loud mouths and we share our feelings and whatever. But there's something about English reserve um, where singing lets them express things that they would never say. Do you notice that? Uh, yeah. The way the English sing and uh, the way they would never say things. It's really interesting. It's very moving to watch, actually. And I love I love watching services from Salisbury Cathedral or Durham Cathedral. And I love, I look at flinty middle-aged English men who are bellowing. <laughs> and I think they're American American equivalent. I don't know if he would be, you know, mm. who might be more gregarious at the bar, mm. but you put him in the church with Loie comes of clouds descending, would he be? So I, I didn't mean to suddenly bring law and shame into this. I was just, just, an, <laughs> just an observation, just an observation. Um, we're, we, we're, be, we're beginning we to go long. Let's close in prayer. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them. Read, mark, learn and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life, in which your son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. 
through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next week. Next week.